Welcome everyone to the 67th episode of the New Gen Mindset Podcast. I'm Dan Kozella here with Nick Tartaglia. How are you, man? I'm well, bud. Yourself? Uh, you know, just living the dream, fighting for dollars, investing, trying to beat the market, whatever it is that we're trying to do every day. Um, and ironically, things are reversing now. Finally, about time. We're starting to see a little shift in the market, shift in you know perception and sentiment. I, 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 I like what's happening because it's really serving as an awakening and a wake up call to a lot of people who thought tech was the only place where you could make money mm-hmm. and commodities have kind of taken over. Um, now we're, we're doing something a little bit different this time around. Um, you know, normally we're bringing on somebody who's just solely focused on the markets. Um, I think this ties into perfectly, uh, what's happening in the housing market, particularly, uh, related to housing starts, uh, roofing, uh, anything that's related to lumber prices. I feel like we're going to get a much closer glimpse into that market right now. Uh, and we know, Nick, that housing is actually a, a leading indicator in an economy, right? Yeah, so it, absolutely. It, yeah, it's definitely a case. But people have to also realize that when you're in a financial position where you can't have yourself a dependent source of income that's passive on the side, that's more in your control, you know, it can't have a a good place in your portfolio for your assets and your and your wealth and your cash flow because sometimes the stock market you can't entirely depend on it since it has ups and downs and sometimes beyond your control whereas when you own your real estate and you make sure you can handle it properly it can do you some good justice too regardless of the uh, the conditions of the market yeah and i think long-term real estate is actually a safe bet um, depends how you use it. Um, are you going to use real estate as a consumption quarter? Or are you going to use it as an investment property? Um, so I've been wanting to get this guy or this gentleman on for quite some time. Uh, we'd have been in contact for at least the last two and a half years, uh, even before COVID. Um, and I think he's probably one of the better guys to talk about, or at least tell us what's happening, uh, in his neck of the woods. Um, so without further ado, uh, this gentleman is an entrepreneur at heart. Uh, he's a leader who's inspired a lot of individuals around him. Uh, he's achieved some very phenomenal personal goals that he set out for himself. Uh, he's got close to $40 million in multifamily real estate holdings, uh, over $175 million in lifetime roofing and siding sales. So I think he definitely knows that market extremely well. Um, he's also the author of a book called The Author of the Business of Marriage, A Court of Three Strands. Can't wait to talk about that. And he's actually contributed uh, on multiple articles with Forbes.com, Money.com, multiple CNBC articles. Uh, welcome to the New Gen Mindset Podcast, Josh Steinberger. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate you having me on. And uh, hopefully I can add some, some value to your listeners. Well, look, I appreciate you coming on. The last time I think we saw each other in person was back in 2019. Uh, it was very brief, but, um, you know, we connected on social media and, uh, you know, I was pretty fascinated as to some of the work that you're doing, uh, pretty much centered around, you know, housing and roofing. I don't know much about that besides looking at a stat sheet on macroeconomic data, but you know, you, you've, you've lived in, you've been, you've been living and breathing it your entire life. So tell, tell us how you got to this point and what, what drove you to want to, you know, be part of that industry. So long story short, I left high school. I went into college at a community college. Um, through high school, I was a, an auto mechanic. I love cars. I'm a big car guy. And uh, I started working in a mechanic's garage for about a year uh, throughout the summer of, of my senior year in high school, doing brakes, oil changes, uh, you know, just kind of stuff that I was already familiar with uh, from my own vehicles, et cetera. And uh, so I went to school for automotive technology. <clears throat> So my job itself required me to leave half a day, go take classes. And I realized when I got to school that the teachers were having me out of class. Uh, the class and the students would have everybody in the classroom watching videos and reading textbooks and, and doing, you know, all of the terrible college uh, smart kid stuff. And uh, I was doing uh, brake jobs and head gasket replacements for teachers' cars. Uh, so at, at one point or another, I looked over at my, uh, my boss that, that I was getting not paid to go to college for and said, Hey, what, what are you going to give me a raise for when I get this piece of paper from this college over here? And he said, uh, yeah, we're not, that's that we don't do that. That's not going to happen. You're, you know, you get paid with the market bears. And, uh, he said, we'll frame it real nice. We got a spot over here where all the certificates are. So we'll stick your certificate up next to ours and you know, you'll love it. And 
that didn't that that triggered something in me. Um, so I went into class the next day. I, I grabbed my teacher. I said, "Hey, what? Well, I don't know what I'm doing here, but it's requiring me to leave. And you know, four or five hours a day, uh, I have to go get not paid to come here and work on all your guys's cars for free." So teacher let me test out. I got my certificate, took it back to the work, uh, workplace, my office there. And, you know, same thing. Didn't get my, didn't get my raise. Thought that at some point in the near future, we we're going to get something. Stopped working on my car, started hating my job very quickly. And uh, I quickly said, well, this is not, this is not for me. I don't think I like this. I don't like working for somebody else. So I, uh, I got on the, uh, the monster back then. Uh, which was the, you know, the only place you could go to find jobs. And I found a, a um, an advertisement for a marketing executive. And at 18, 19 years old, I don't know about you guys, what comes into your head, maybe a little bit more now because it's mainstream, but, you know, 20 years ago, what popped into my head, the movie that just got done was Matthew McConaughey and how to lose a guy in 10 days. <laughs> and so I see this ad come up and I'm reading the job interview, you know, description and I'm like, man, I think this, this, this job, I think I'm, I'm going to go be Matthew McConaughey. This would be pretty sweet. And uh, so I go and I interview with the job and we, we, we get it and, and it's a sales job. Ultimately, long story short is it, it puts me in a door-to-door position to go sell cable and internet for AT&T uh, as they rolled out UVerse before it was widely available for neighborhoods. So they would send us in and target, hey, there's 200 houses just got green light. They're, they're installed, ready to go. They just got to get told they can do it. Um, got promoted through that business very quickly to where I was running an office in Detroit in Kansas City, um, which leads me to why I'm in Kansas City, back in Kansas City. Now it's where my wife's from. Uh, met her there in the office and uh, was there for, I was in Kansas City then uh, for until I was like 21. Uh, I had two offices in two different states running roughly 60 employees uh, and the profit margin on selling cable and internet is much, much like, I guess, uh, you know, selling insurance nowadays, only a cable and internet bill, you know, you get paid for one month's, you know, one month's bill basically is the commission on it. So a a whopping cable and internet sale was worth like $112. So, you know, getting kids to come out and go door to door for 112 bucks selling them on the, uh, the, the boiler room pitch of one day, you're going to be the guy recruiting guys sitting here. You'll not have to go door to door. It'll be awesome. Um, you know, that lasted for so long. And then one random day, my stepdad calls me up who, who at the time was running a, a construction company in Cleveland, Ohio. It did mainly uh, commercial construction. And he said, uh, Hey, uh, commercial is 2007 now, 2008 ish rate is the rate is the housing market. Everything went to, you know, holy hand jobs. And, he, uh, so he calls me, he says, Hey, I, I don't do this. Cause he, his, his segment of uh, business was writing tons of estimates for commercial and hoping he's the cheap guy. And if he is then you know, go and stay in a hotel, wherever to build a Burlington co factory, uh, as far as like the inside shelving and stuff, that was his niche. Um, but he said, Hey, I, I got a guy here that says, if you, uh, you find houses with damage, you go up, knock on the door and tell him, Hey, you know, your roof's got damage. Uh, insurance company will pay you to replace your roof. So you know, you'll save $10,000 cause you don't got to buy it yourself. And, you know, back then deductibles were like two fifty or 500 bucks. So it's essentially a free product. And he said, I don't have a way to do it, but I think that you're probably qualified to go out knock on doors, find people to do it. And we crunched some numbers and I said, well, what, what's a commission bear on something like this? And so, you know, 10% of the total job on a $10,000 job was a thousand dollar commission. So I said, well, I think it's about the same amount of work as hunting down uh, cable and internet jobs for, you know, hundred bucks a sale. Uh, I, c- I think I could do that for a thousand dollars per sale. Uh, and then, uh, so we'll, we'll build out the company and we'll split it in half. I'll build out a sales department, handle everything on acquisitions. You deal with everything that has to deal with the building department, finding crews, labor, material, the whole shebang like that. And so we married together and, and got in business uh, between my mom, my stepdad, myself uh, for better part of seven, eight years. Um, started the business, built the business up to $12, $13 million a year in, in, in rev very quickly. Uh, first year we did like $6 million. Second year was like eight or $9 million. And uh, then 10 to $15 million uh, was like the easy, like easy number to trip over. So, you know, depending on the year's storms and, and, you know, stuff to that effect of, of what the weather bears, um, situationally close to where the office was would be, you know, whether or not we'd have a great year or like an okay year. And, uh, so we did that for a while, um, until February 1st, 
five or six years ago, uh, I walked into the office and had a letter of termination handed to me. Yeah, bombshell, right? Uh, great news. Uh, I'm not an idiot. And so business with family is business with family, some things you see coming in the horizon, et cetera. So uh, I had already incorporated another business name and had taken uh, you know, payments, my bonus, year on bonus. I had paid out to my my uh, subcontracted 1099 company um, in my new new company's name, my current company's name for the last two years. So when I got when I got shit canned, I I had already had two years tax returns for the company with six figure net profits. So, um, you know, we had as a family goes in business, we had crossed that bridge for for years, years and years and years of of this is. got into a situation for us to that break up yeah for a second <laughs> oh my internet is unstable well thanks for that zoom uh <laughs> you'll have to no, see just for like a couple of seconds no but so 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 circle back you know we, we knew it was a bad idea but you know I, I figured it'd break up the family if i just one day personally on my side said hey i'm going to take the whole sales department and you know good luck you guys no longer have sales um because I could obviously operate at that time, uh, the whole business up, down, sideways, all of it. Uh, the hard part, generally speaking, is client acquisition, which was what I was good at. So, so that brings us here. Uh, we, we made our first three sales within 24 hours of getting fired, uh, put our first job on within seven days, had office space within 30 days. First year, we did $6.9 million. And uh, like I say, the same thing, we're, I'm really good at 10 to $15 million. So we're, we're currently working with uh, Grant and Brandon and all those guys that trying to break through the $15 million barrier and, and move into the 25 million range. So it's all about scalability at this point, which is always the hardest part, especially once you reach that plateau, because you've kind of mastered it. And I feel like you're comfortable at that level, but like the biggest killer of any business is comfort, right? So that's, that's pretty cool. Um, Talk about, you know, like that, that year where you were pretty much trying to figure out how to sell, right? Because ultimately what Nick likes to talk about, and I'll let him kind of touch base on this, but it's all about production, right? If you can produce in any type of economy, you're going to be fine, right? And I find we're in a period right now where, you know, for lack of better words, society believes that, oh, I could just sit at home, collect a check, and then I'll be okay. And then three years later, they're starting to realize, well, I can't even afford you know, basic basket of goods, right? So what, what made you want to go into sales apart from the stuff that I just listed? And like, why did you decide like, this is, this is what I'm good at, right? Client acquisition, which is basically sell sales 101. So I am, I am terrible at all of that. I just, I got swindled when I went to AT&T thinking I was going to be in a, in a boardroom somewhere pitching Joe Blow, Bush Lattes commercial as a marketing director, right? I didn't, I didn't realize I was selling as a job or a career until I nearly quit the job. So I got, I was so bad at door-to-door at -door sales initially right on that we went, they sent me on a business trip to Columbus, probably roughly 60 days into, into the job. And I was, I mean, I was terrible. Like two, if, if production was 10 sales a week, I was doing two. And that was just because I got lucky. Um, and they sent me on a, on a business truck down to, to Columbus. And I finally hit the wall um, in sales where I, uh, everything exploded in my brain. I had like that, that like epiphany, the epiphany, that, that moment. Right. And, and for in sales, what, what people would miscategorize the epiphany moment of is really that moment is when you learn and you find your indifference. In sales, it's probably the hardest thing for people to, to acquire is that, that part of where I'm not a salesperson. I'm not begging you to come to buy my product. Uh, and so I finally got to a point where I, I quit. I was on a business trip, so I couldn't quit while I was in Columbus. So it was like, when I get home, I'm done. And uh, I, th I think I put up like six sales that day and, and high rolled the office for the, the whole remainder of the business trip that we were there. And so, you know, when we got back and they, when we got back to Cleveland, they promoted me. My mind right now is all like, I don't even know what's happening. Like, 
I just, I must've just got like a bunch of easy, you know, easy customers, but it, it, it never slowed down from that point forward. And so when I, when we got back and I got promoted and I look back, it legitimately was a point where like, you know, I, when I was new and, and starting and trying to figure it out, I was just begging everybody for sales. Like, Hey man, like, I totally want to give you internet. Like, like I can save you money. I, I promise them I'll figure it out. And when I finally got to a point where like I, I was in my head, I quit. I didn't care if I gave them anything. It was just like, I have to work. So I'll knock on the doors all day long and, you know, nonchalantly go through the, the motions and people were, you know, real open to that. They were like, they didn't feel pressured. They didn't feel like I was actually trying to swindle them in any way since I'm going door to door. And, you know, the floodgates opened and I realized through that, um, you know, these guys that were teaching me how to sell, they had a really good system. It was, you know, a company that was licensed with AT&T. So that wasn't like they were, you know, mom and pops, Joe Blow sales company. They were, they were well backed, um, systematic wise. So, you know, their training of, of the four impulse factors and what Jones effect was and why we use indifference and why, why all the nuts and bolts of like this little tiny box of making sales really simple. Most people just overcomplicate it. Well, I'm just having epiphanies too, because, you know, I've been in sales for, for six years, Nick, Nick also in a way, I mean, you know, being in a restaurant, it's, it's a form of selling as well, but, um, it's it's, effort there. (laughs) (laughs) It it is, it is interesting though, because what you're essentially doing is, you know, cold calling is full on. You're calling a stranger that doesn't know you. They don't trust you. They hear somebody they know. The first reaction is they're going to be like, oh, crap, not another sales call. And you always have to bring that guard down, right? And you always have to say, listen, I know you're getting a million phone calls of these a day. I don't want to pitch you on anything that you're not qualified for type of stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, but, you know, what? what is it about the ability to connect with other people that continues to make somebody like yourself, and I guess myself too, keep wanting to pursue and be somewhat persistent, but there's obviously that fine line of like, okay, I can't be too persistent because I don't want to come off as desperate, but I also got to be persistent enough to make them realize that there's nothing else out there like that, if that makes sense. Completely. And I hate to say this, but I was mildly frozen there for like four seconds. I missed the question. (laughs) It's all good. The question was, are you like, what is it about, your ability to stay in the fight when in the, when the thing is going a little bit tough, like it's not going your way that allows you to continue to pursue and say, Hey, why don't we like, you need this product right now, but you don't say it like that. You don't come off as desperate. If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, the, the word for that is indifference and it, and it, and it's, that is in sales, the hardest thing to have, because when things are not going, it's easy to be indifferent when things are going great and, and you, you know, you're waxed. And so the easiest way, way to, to, to roll through that feeling of like, why am I doing this? This sucks. I don't want to go to work today. This is terrible. Uh, which is, you know, the, uh, a part of sales and the, and the biggest thing to, you know, thwart that and, and keep going is to have a full pipeline. If you are prospecting and you got an overflowing pipe, you don't have to take the sale. You don't have to work with the terrible customer that you don't want to work with because, you know, they're going to stiff you on the the last 10% of the bill that they got to pay and come up with a reason. And you knew that was going to happen when you first talked, but you were so desperate to make a commission check on it that you took the client. Um, You know, so keep them moving. Uh, You know, there's not, there's not another industry in the planet that allows, uh, to be paid back to, um, you know, sales guy like that. That's, it's the highest paying job there is in the world. Yeah. And I think the important thing too, is you just got to keep, like you said, you got to stick to it um, and keep well, filling It's like, it's like we were talking about before, right Don, the consistency part. Eventually I'm sure that if you keep your pipeline full, if you keep pushing, keep talking to people, eventually the consistency and the compounding effect of that constantly going at it eventually starts to roll and once it starts rolling the ball gets bigger and bigger or the snowball effect gets bigger and bigger you get more confident and then the way you resonate with others when you're trying to do that those sales eventually it's it it does the job for you on its own yeah. I, I yeah i agree with that and i think it's also just the fact that you're in a position as well you know maybe we could just build on just explain the indifferent part, but it's really just you being in a position where you don't really care if you get the deal or not. 
Mm -hmm. right? And I find there's so much, there's so much uh, power in that because that just shows you how unfazed you are, whether or not there's a massive challenge of some sort. I like how we're taking this conversation into just sales 101 because it's so important. They fail to teach this in school. Um, I took one sales class in university. I actually, I'm surprised I finished my undergrad, but I, I, I was just, it was, it was literally an English literature class. They made us read a book. They said, what do you have to think about this? How would you apply this in an in-person meeting? And I remember talking to like the teacher and the first question I asked her was just like, ma'am, like with all due respect, like what's the most amount of money that you've made in sales, like from your career? And I got probably the biggest death stare from this teacher <laughs> of like, that's, it's not about, it's not about how much money you make. You know what I mean? And I looked around and I go, and I had some, some people were giving me dirty looks too. They're just like, who is this kid? What the hell is he talking about? But it also called just her out. You right. Called but her it, person out. it wasn't my intention to call her out. It was more of just like, wait, are you like, I'm just asking, like, are you even qualified to teach mm -hmm. us sales if you haven't done any of this? And the clear answer was just like, probably not. You know, she didn't want to admit that. And I'm, I might come off as arrogant or cocky for most people, but it, I'm just being honest right now. So you know, when you look at what's happening in the school system right now, there's a huge gap, right? So what are you doing right now to basically one, at least help others get better at, you know, sales and just connecting with people and three, where's the next opportunity for that moving forward? Oh man. Um, obviously. So, so you're up in Canada. I'm, I'm down in the United States. So we're, we're equally screwed on both sides of the coin politically. <laughs> I would, I would argue that we're more screwed. <laughs> I, I wouldn't argue back with you. I would, I would give you that one. Um, as I think finally America has woken up where I, I Canada is still a couple months behind us on, uh, on the, you know, the, Oh shit. So hopefully uh, administratively things start to move through and, and, and we get back to a place where, you know, they tried to take all of our freedom and we may go back to who and what, where, America was in school years ago where we had home ec and, you know, in an economics class and, um, oh man, at, uh, at church this weekend, uh, <laughs> my worship director, uh, blew out his, his, this, the crotch seam of his pants. And I looked him in the face and said, well, you know how to stitch that, right? Like not a big deal. It's four stitches. It's on the crotch. You can't see it. It's, it's not a pretty thing. And he was like, just the stare of like, no, I have no idea what to do. Where do you even get like thread? And I was like, it just, he's obviously a few years younger than I am. And I was like, man, I can't, like when I was a kid, we had to, we didn't have a choice to, but to, like, you had to learn how to sew. We had to learn how to use a saw and wood shop. And you had to, you know, and like two years after I was out of those, you know, seventh, eighth, ninth grade, they deleted all of those classes. And so, you know, like you said, America is screwed. Canada screwed. Our youth are screwed. Um, good news is hopefully we'll be teetering on, you know, dying when everything really burns down and, you know, just take me. Um, <laughs> uh, but to circle back to the question with the youth, uh, like my family specifically, my kids upstairs right now, I spent two Saturday, Sunday this weekend was beautiful out. Um, we, we, we went to Home Depot. We made a shopping list. Um, we, we made a, a, uh, a budget for building out a, a, a proper, uh, lemonade stand, uh, our, our neighborhood here has a, a like neighborhood wide, um, garage sale on Friday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday this week. So, um, William went out my, my youngest, he's seven. So he went out, made it, we made a list, we made a, a startup cost. You know, he's got all his receipts together for what, what would cost, uh, mom and I's time so far is free. We'll see how long that lasts until we start charging for labor. Uh, he recruited two other kids in the neighborhood here to staff the, uh, the booth with him. They've gone door to door and passed out flyers, uh, that the, the lemonade stand was coming up and to come see them for the weekend. You know, good news, bad news for me is I, I live in a, a fairly nice neighborhood. So, you know, the neighbors are mostly retired, older-ish people um, that are plenty wealthy to just, you know, oh my goodness, this is great. This is what, you know, we need more in America. So I'm sure he's going to kill it. And he's going to do probably 10 times better uh, selling lemonade than we're going to do selling stuff in the actual um, garage sale that, uh, you know, whatever old stuff my wife decides that we got to get rid of. But, um, you know, making sure to spend 
a, a, a portion of time having those conversations with our kids uh, is something that's super, super, super important. Um, one of the, th- the, you know, the most important thing that I think I, I've, I've beat, beat to death with my children is that um, there is no end in, in money. There's, there's no cap. You know, there's, there's, no, there's, there's no point where if we spent it all, we can't get any more. And so they know that everybody else has everything that they want in life. And that, uh, you know, as long as they're willing to get up and come up with a new idea and keep moving, um, that, that our, our duty and obligation for the first 40 years of our life is to build and acquire more and more and more and more, um, until we, we then have to, to start looking at, uh, you know, preservation and, and taxes and, and, and what the, the end years of life will, will run down because uh, the bucket's so big. But at that point, hopefully the bucket's overflowing so much um, that it doesn't matter what we pay in taxes or who needs whatever, you know, we, we took an at bat and the deal went south and, you know, we lost our investment into it completely. Um, trying to be, you know, obviously educated in the decisions that we make, but making sure that they understand we can always get more. That's really, that's really powerful. Like you're basically instilling into your kids an abundance mindset. Right. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's also something that doesn't get talked about a lot in education. This like, since I was in school, I mean, Nick, Nick's scratching his head going like, there's been so many times where that, that has been, you know, lacking. So that's really cool. I mean, like you're just, just to give a comparable here, the, the one time, the only favorite thing I've ever had in school was when I was in high school we had a, so in grade, so in the last year of high school here in Quebec, you have like uh, five years of high school. My last year of high school was well, the first semester, first half was a stock competition online. So every student in the grade had to compete for three months. The winner at the end won a little prize, whatever. So at least for five months, you play with fake money, but you got to practice and indulge in that. It was fun. Everybody was loving it. And the second half was an actual entrepreneurial game where every you had to group up within seven to 10 people within your class and you had to create an actual business. And there was a theme of a year, whether it was food or clothes or something. And then you would go out and you would actually sell stock to your teachers and your other students who could buy actual equity in your business. And you could, then you would have a period of time for three days after a couple months where you would actually sell, you would have a booth, a booth, you would sell your actual product. You have to get, um, advertisers you have to make raise money you have to choose a do- where to donate your money and then at the end after your costs all your profit half of it would go to a donation half of it would go back to all your shareholders so if you did good your students and your teachers would make money off of you and it was just engaging and that was that year was probably my favorite year of my entire school schooling education the rest of it was useless to me and i didn't really enjoy it much but that year I always refer to it because I had so much fun. And if I could have, if I would have had that at home and I had friends around me that were doing that, it creates this culture in this environment where you want to just be proactive and you want to be productive. You want to handle your own things. You don't want to be dependent on others. Yeah, man. It was cool. So that when you saying that with your kids kind of reminded me of that. I love it. I want to move. Uh, like, and I, I, that's actually really cool. I didn't have that in high school. Like we had nothing close to that, um, unfortunately, <laughs> but anyway, um, Josh, tell us a little bit more just about next gen restorations, right. Um, from a business standpoint too, and just from an economic standpoint right now, like what, what are you seeing uh, in the market based on, you know, pricing and then what, what is it about the business right now? uh, that you see moving forward apart from you guys trying to scale it, obviously that's, that's, that's the long-term goal. Yeah. Uh, prices have, uh, gone up 25% in the last 18 months, uh, overall labor cost, uh, material cost. Um, I, uh, my superpower in business is kind of seeing the future. Um, a lot of times I'm not skilled in any way, shape or form with, uh, administratively figuring out the path on, on changing course, but I can see that there's an iceberg and the Titanic's heading at it. So I can see kind of a long way off on that. And so for us, the biggest thing in the the industry, we don't personally get a big bump into, but a lot of guys that are in our space do, uh, is going to be material allocation. And so part of the way that they're keeping prices going up when it comes to, you know, materials and all of that is by shorting our supply. And so when they short the supply, they tell you, hey, you're only allowed to have four jobs worth of this specific manufacturing color this week, uh, you know, by supply shops, et cetera. 
Um, there's word like on the down low, weird like murmurings that Amazon has uh, two huge warehouses, um, like city size warehouses that they're buying a bunch of building material stuff and stocking it to short the, the market to run out local supply shops um, for like contractor grade stuff, right? So I don't buy my materials from Home Depot. I buy them from a, a third party contractor direct, um, you know, bulk supplier. And so there's word that they're trying to push those guys out of the business completely and then allow drop shipping directly from Amazon for building materials. And so there, that's been like a on the horizon kind of thing now for probably 10 years, uh, eight to 10 years was like, it, it's going to happen and maybe it'll happen. It'll eventually happen. And so right now, at least in the commercial sheet roofing space, that's what we're seeing a ton of. Um, everything is gone. And it's, and it's a matter of talking with the manufacturers. They're, they're saying that they're not short on their production. We haven't built out 10 times more, you know, buildings right now where it's like, well, there's the supply short because everybody's literally like doing kind of one of these, like it's, is it your fault? Is it my, where's the material at? Like they're, they, they're saying they're making it, but it's just, it, eventually it goes poof. And so, you know, knowing kind of the, I don't know, the Illuminati of the, you know, the, the, the industry and having some of those inter conversations, much like you and I met, uh, I make sure that I, I spend a lot of time with some of the movers and shakers that are behind the scenes that nobody really sees. It doesn't know, but they're way up there in, in, in that kind of thing. And that's what they're giving back to us is that there's an abundance of things being purchased and they're not being resold. So that's shorting the market, the market gets shorted. Now we all have to pay more for materials because like everything else in the world that's being shorted, everything's being shorted. So, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's tulip mania, but the, you yeah, know, it's the hoarding effect. Uh, it's like kind of like the toilet paper scare. You people are, people are so uncertain what's happening. So their, their demand goes up, the supply stays fixed. So prices go up. Yep. because they're, they're putting so much more pressure than, than necessary. Yeah. So, so we, we got lucky. I, I, uh, two years ago, I saw that as a possible thing I got with my manufacturer. We started looking at an ability to buy without having a, that intermediate, um, supply manufacturer, as far as that goes. So manufacturer direct sending me direct semis. So I kind of circumnavigated a lot of the, that conversation of, you know, Hey, we can only get this little box. I pay more for material. I always have, um, and, and so for me right now, I have this, this abundance of marketing, you know, industry people that, that I have, you know, paid the price with them and not always been the guy like, yeah, you guys can't, what are you going to do for me? Am I, you know, my rock bottom price this year to where I'm shopping back and forth. And I, I'm now, you know, the, the industry horror who I go to different, you know, a different supplier every year, because they're going to buy my business at, you know, a 5% discount on their profit margin just to acquire me. And then at the end of the year, they're going to bump me, which we know, and I can, and I can, I know I can go to the next supplier and they're going to continue to do this merry-go-round thing for as long as I'm willing to play that game. And I, and I never have, I, 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 from what I understand, I'm one of the very few companies in the country that, 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 uh, you know, paid the price, but I paid the increase. I don't, I don't argue with it. In the grand scheme of, of life, uh, if my supplier makes another $100,000 a year in, in net rev on my personal projects, when and if I ever have a problem, that's $100,000 in net rev that I can count on to say, you guys screwed something up or a gray area screwed something up. Your truck blew a hydraulic line and sprayed it all over my customer's driveway. And, you know, they're pissed. Now they're not going to pay me. Most places are going to say, you know, hey, well, you know, sorry, pound salt you know, shit happens. The, the line blew. It wasn't us. We didn't do anything, whatever, where I can make that phone call. My guy, you know, they'll run right out and take care of my customer uh, and make sure that we get paid because, you know, at the end of the day, they're making good money on us. So they want to keep us happy. If you're cutting everybody's legs out from underneath bottom, the, you know, the bare nuts on what they need to do to, to, to service your account, there's nothing in there left over for customer service. There's nothing in there for, you know, you to have any kind of pull. You get pissed at them and you say, Hey, you know, I hate you. You suck. They go, okay, cool. You're going to go to, you know, ABC to the, at the beginning of next year anyway. So why don't you go get them now? Because they don't make any money on you anyway. So they could care less whether they keep you as a client. Interesting point of like servicing the client, right? Like that's such a, that, that, that always gets lost in transition with like just looking at numbers sometimes. So um, with lumber being so expensive too, I mean, we saw lumber futures pretty much reach, you know, ridiculous amounts uh, last year. I think it was like, you know, 1400 bucks for like a hundred tons or whatever the futures contracts were saying, Nick and I looked at each other. I'm like, there's no way this is sustainable. 
And then it came back down as like a chart normally would, because that's what charts do. But when that volatility starts happening, especially for guys like you, like what do you guys normally do to lock in pricing? Or for you, you don't really care. You're just like, all right, I have a good relationship with the supplier. I'm just going to hold on to this. I'll lock in like the next three months or something. Like what, what was that like? Because the swings were insane. I remember that last year it was nuts. So, so industry-wise, I could speak kind of on both angles of it. It didn't affect my business in any way directly. Uh, I don't mess with a lot of things in lumber. Um, my, my materials are tied more to um, oil, uh, being asphalt products, things like that, shingles and residential, um, which obviously now we're seeing increases, et cetera. So I, I lock with my, my relationship there, same thing. Since I overpay, my, my suppliers are willing to lock me into longer terms opposed to playing that you only get like a 30 day price and every 30 days we can bump your, your, to whatever the market bears. I lock mine for between six months and a year so I can predict everything. And in six months, if, you know, Hey, you know, between all of that, if it doesn't average out to where everybody's fine, then we, we bump it for the rest of the year or they go, Hey, you know, it's been gas prices for getting trucks to deliver for you. And, you know, materials, our material prices have gone up. So we do at, you know, in June this year, we have to bump you guys a couple points or whatever. Um, so my, my material, my prices don't, don't do too bad with that, but speaking to a lot of new builders. So we just, we did start doing some new construction stuff this year. And a, a good friend of mine, um, for a volume builder here in, uh, not here, but up in Cleveland, um, they do 150 builds a year, new houses. And, um, so talking to him through what they did with a lot of the lumber, their contract allows for a 10% slippage. So once, a, once you get a 10% difference in materials and the, the build cost exceeds that, they go back and say, Hey, this was part of your contract. Sorry, but we're just going to add to it. And, you know, you don't like it. You're welcome to get out of the contract. And good, good news for them was nobody was losing jobs during COVID. They were, if anything, they were just getting paid to sit around and do nothing. So cool. Exactly. We bumped the price. And if you don't want it, cool. There's another ass that'll take this house the day that it's done. There is no delay on them. So they just continue to bump prices. Uh, I mean, personally for me, I bought, a, I bought a house in the middle of COVID um, literally in uh, April of 2020. So like right when the country, the world was like, do not buy anything. Everybody's going to be unemployed in the next six months, you know, bend over and grab your ankles. The world's ending. Um, <laughs> I saw that as opportunity. My wife and I moved to Kansas city, the school shut down. We didn't have anybody in Cleveland to help us with, you know, kids in school. And so I don't have any time. And I'm, well, I like to say I'm qualified. I'm not qualified to sit with my kids eight hours a day and try to teach them school. I will murder my children. Um, <laughs> He's just no, being honest. He's just right? being honest. <laughs> I, I am a fantastic teacher. You want me to do 20 minutes of homework. I will help you with your homework. I will let you make all kinds of weird faces at me until I give you the answer. Fine. Manipulate me. <laughs> but you want to play eight hours. I got to do math and try to teach you arithmetic. It's not going to work. Terrible decision for me to have to be the only, you know, me and my wife to be the only people to do that. So uh, we were like, Hey, we, you know, we need help. We need family. We need to be around people that we can at least at minimum be teachers for eight hours a day and then dump the kids with a, you know, my, my wife, sister, or whoever, and, and sit in a corner and just like recover from having to be teachers and parents and business owners uh, all at the same time. So, you know, we went through that whole process. We moved to Kansas city in the middle of it. And I was like, I'm not staying in a, an apartment long-term. So, you know, we came where the, there was help with school. I was like, cool, let's go find a house. We found a house. Uh, it was currently a model home. They were still building in a new, de new development here in Kansas city. And I think I might've been the last human being on planet earth that negotiated during COVID uh, the purchase price of their house down. So <laughs> I did so well with the negotiation of my house because it was a model home. Uh, it wasn't for sale. Um, but because the world had just announced that it was over, nobody was going to have a job. I had cash to buy this house. So, um, they allowed me to purchase lock in my price for a year out closing. It was 11 month closing period, um, until they finished the next like row of houses on the next street over to where they were moving the model row where I was at here now, uh, to move the new model home over there with, for that. So, uh, we had a, a 11 month landing strip to when we would close, Gave him a bunch of earnest money. Said, "Cool, I don't. I'm, that's that's fine. I'll go get an apartment, knowing I'm going to have what I want to have." Checked all the neighborhoods everywhere. Like this was the neighborhood we had to be in. Um, like this was the house. You know what I mean? When you, you get that, so we negotiated price down. The last week um, of our 11 month, you know, whatever, uh, in, in trying to get this house closed, the builder did everything they could do to kick me out of my contract. So 
they, uh, which is, you know, crazy. It was a model home. There was no construction. So they were playing all kinds of dirty stuff with uh, the, the verbiage in the contract that said, you know, if I don't like the way the people that they use for subcontractors, if I don't like, and you know, where the builder and I couldn't get along, the builder has the option to exercise the right to kick me out, release me of my contract and pay me an extra 10% of my earnest money. So anytime they go, Hey, I don't want to deal with you. You're a pain in my ass. We can fire you as a client give you back your earnest money plus 10% for the, you know, the pain and suffering hassle of waiting for whatever you had to do with it. And we'll just sell it to somebody else. And so three days before we went to close, they tried to do that. Um, we, we stopped out here a hundred times, you know, measuring for new furniture and stuff. So that when we moved in, we had, everything was built for this house. And uh, the listing agent was always very adamant how they had people offering hundreds of thousands of dollars over that following year, uh, more than what we had contracted the purchase of this home for. So um, long story short, you know, up, down, sideways with builders. If they don't, some of them got screwed because they, the, the custom home guys didn't have that verbiage to allow a, a, a swing in their, their pricing. Um, but outside of that, uh, the guys that didn't do now, um, that's, that, be, that has become a, a new standard in, um, new construction contract language, uh, remodeling guys didn't really get it too bad because same thing. They just were like, Hey, it's going to be more do it or don't. Um, you know, some of the guys that are terrible business, uh, usually being small guys in construction, uh, probably didn't pay attention to a lot of their, that conversation and built the job and did it at a loss. And then after the, after the fact, tried to recuperate, you know, money because they didn't have a full pipeline. So back to the pipeline. So, you know, you got the new guy who's going to build a deck for somebody at six months out, blah, blah, blah. Springtime comes around. Cool. Let me go get your lumber. Like, holy crap. The lumber is the price of the entire contract. And, uh, you know, then they, so they go, okay, cool. It'll be fine. They just do the work. And then they go back for a change order when the work's done to go, Hey, by the way, like, you know, lumber has gone up. It's, you can see it on the news, <laughs> you know, you'll, you'll totally just give me more money. Right. You know, homeowners are like, no, we had a contract. You, <laughs> you should have said that before you ordered it. I would have just told you, you know, give me back my, you know, 1800 buck deposit or whatever. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll just not do it because we can't afford it at that price or, or whatever. So, you know, there's, there's levels of everything. I mean, realistically in, in the, in life construction is filled with degenerates and not the most educated people in, in the world. So there's a lot of guys that got hurt by COVID and, and material shortages and spiking prices. It, you, but, okay. but it's, I was just going to say, Nick, you can ask your question, but I just find it because it's, it's for me, it's like, I'm looking at the market and like immediately when I think of housing starts and lumber prices, I think of guys like yourself who are like killing it. And there's also like that group of guys who are just like, they'll get their hands dirty with everything, but they don't understand the economics. So when shit does hit the fan, they're questioning. It's like when 08 happened, it's like, well, what happened? And, you know, the big short did a great job of explaining that in a very simplistic way. I think most people understand why that happened. I hope it never happens again, but um, it just shows you that, you know, economics ultimately at the end of the day is people's behavior, right? And how people react to certain things. The numbers are just reinforcing what's happening by the people. Nick, go ahead. Sorry. No, I just want to say was like from an observational standpoint, do you notice, like, can you talk a little bit about your, what you've noticed in terms of the last two, three years during what's been going on with COVID in terms of, you know, in your industry and the trends. And then if you remember, can you also compare it a little to back, like in the financial crisis back in like 09, 10, 11, if you can kind of like, if, if there's anything you, you notice that's similar or different or things that worry, that worries you a little. So I started out roofing and, and I got into the construction industry in, in 07, 08. So like right at the middle of the, you know, the holy, what is happening? Um, I started the business. So, so I, I'm semi, I have a Delta because insurance carriers are required to maintain a, a certain slush fund of cash uh, to settle claims. And so ma- majority of my clients being that uh, they're coming from storm damage and they have, you know, an insurance carrier, third party that's paying their bill. They could care less at that point. It's even worse because, you know, they're, they're really like, you know, who cares, whatever, it's not my money, just fix it. Um, but as far as like, you know, the market situation outside of that, so retail talking about retail specifically, um, retail and construction. I mean, for, if you have construction is such an easy industry to, to do, like I said, $10 million is easy to trip over and, and in construction to do $10 million, you need to put out a, a C plus product, B minus maybe, right? So when you caulk your window, it has to be semi 
straight and not terribly wobbly and nasty goopy. Um, and so, you know, to the degree that a, a, a uneducated homeowner would see your work and go, yeah, it looks better than I could do. You could be a $10 million producing company tomorrow with 10 employees. And, and what I mean by that is that all you have to do is return your phone calls. That's it. Return emails, set expectations and meet them. And then put on that C plus B minus product. And you would take all that, all the middle market share. So market segment basically, and this is what the, the, the world and the country and the WHO and, and all of the world economic forum is trying to do to the world now and is, is individually by country screwing each country over to take away that middle class. Mm -hmm. And so what happened is the, the, the guys that are do well are doing better. Mm -hmm. The guys that were doing shitty are doing equally shitty, but they're also ultimately still there. And then the people in the middle completely disappeared. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in construction specifically, you have the option to do a really good business and be really well. And, and at that point, you're going to, we take that middle, that middle 40, 50%. So we take uh, as a top 10% company, We'll take that other 40% of that 50% in the middle. And so now we're a top, you know, half a quarter of 1% company within all, all of that market segment. And then now you have the bottom side of the coin of, of what was, you know, 20% of the, the terrible contractors. And what happened is those guys are the only ones that we compete with because they were so cheap economically, as far as labor, the material, the stuff goes, you know, they need enough money to buy their, their booze and their crack at the end of the day that, you know, same thing. They're, old guys, right? Construction's a dying breed. We don't have young kids nowadays that are learning trades. So the tradesmen that fit that bottom third that are just skilled laborers that are one or two man companies, or, you know, the guy that just does it by himself and remodels kitchens and is comes, shows up drunk, you know, but does good work. We all know a guy like that, you know, like hangs <laughs> the shelves, whatever, like that's what construction is. And it's terrible mm -hmm. to say that, you know, I'm, I'm not the typical guy that look at construction. And when it comes to actually doing the work, I am not the guy you want to hire. You never want me hanging whiteboard this, this has got two screws in the wall at any given minute, it's going to fall off the wall and crush me. Uh, but, but what I do know is how to rate a check. I know how to set expectations. I know how to sell and run a profit and loss statement. So as a company, I can put together, you know, the Avengers team and get my guys over here that are doing the construction work. And then I get the sales guys over here and I have a good financing department. And when you put all that together, it makes a really great company. Um, but most of the guys don't, it's just them. And, and then maybe their wife does some kind of accounting thing for them when they get home from work to, you know, throw whatever receipts that they, they throw in her lap at the end of the day. And so that guy, uh, like I said, has, has a, a $150,000 house. He's got a, a $400 a month mortgage. He's got a truck that's got rust holes out the wazoo's his tools are vibrating out the back. It's, it's more expensive replacing the tools that fell out of the rust holes in the bed of the truck than it is physically, you know, putting gas in the truck. And so when I'm competing against that guy, obviously I can't compete against them in price. And there are customers all day long that are just cost price customers, price, yeah. even with the up and the down. So if I'm, if I'm doing the up and down, I'm riding the wave and I'm saying, Hey, you want to work with me? That's fine. We're eight weeks out. Here's the prices going up because the materials are going up. And that guy goes, cool. I'll, I'll do it for what he said he was going to do it for originally without a, a, a markup for the, you know, for that one guy, he's like, you know, I'll make my same money. I don't care. And, and for me, if it shrinks my profit margin by 10%, I have overhead and things he doesn't. And so that guy still is, is a cockroach will always be there. As long as people are willing to pay for a price only and nothing else, there will always be that market segment. The problem is, is that in between where, where you, you got guys that want to have a good business, but realistically they're not. So they want, they're the, the middle, the middle class of, of construction of blue collar America or blue collar world Canada, whatever. I'm sure you guys have plumbers, right? Electricians. <laughs> We got a hat full here. That's for sure. <laughs> right. You got window installers. So anybody yeah. that's swinging a hammer, you got, you got kind of that, that space in the, in the middle there where they're never going to become a business. And when they retire, whatever LLC they had goes away with them because yeah. they don't have any employees. They maybe have a helper and you don't hardly call that an employee. Right. So that's like the guy that helps you lift the heavy stuff because you're going to do the work all day. And, and you could be a, a highly paid em employee of yourself make, you know, 70, 80, hundred thousand dollars a year chasing down leads and, and doing all of that on, on Sunday when you're supposed to be at your kid's soccer game, because Monday through Saturday, you physically are out swinging a hammer from 8 AM to 8 PM. And, uh, you know, those guys want to do all the right things. And so those are the people that I coach. Those are usually the people that I sit down and I say, Hey, you guys realize that if you could do this, you have the information 
that that's the harder part. Let me give you the, the playbook on these other little tiny, easy things. And you'll scale this company to multi-million dollar company and you won't have to work in 18 months. It, 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 I'm just, I'm having an epiphany here. It's like the cash flow quadrant that Robert Kiyosaki talks about. It's like, you know, there's the employee, there's the self-employed, there's the business and obviously the investor. I think everybody is an investor at some point early on regardless, but you're basically, your, your, your mission right now is to create a system that essentially allows anybody who that's in construction, roofing, uh, contracting to be able to, you know, get in, get their feet wet, but also allow them to learn about what it takes to do both sides. So it's really focusing on your business, not being inside your business, if that makes sense. Right. hundred percent. I, that's really cool, man. Um, one last thing, I mean, you know, investing, that's a big piece, right? Um, real estate is kind of that one safe haven to what, what have you really invested in, uh, over, uh, apart from the multifamily, but like, you know, what, what, what do you look for primarily when you're investing in something that, you know, for yourself will eventually generate some kind of future cash flow? Well, first thing is, first thing is first, if you are using the I word, that, that is investment, there is absolutely no way to know for sure that it will provide you future cash flow. Um, because at some point or another, if you're investing into something or someone else or another something, there is a certain level of risk that is associated with it. So you can't know for sure that those things are going to obviously produce. And, and so for, for me in, in, the, in investing and in, in looking at growing wealth, uh, making sure my money's working while I'm sleeping is what, what we're getting at here, I guess. Uh, for me, it's about taking it bats. I like the $200,000 bet. I could put up five $200,000 bats a year and I'm, I, I got a 33%, 333 uh, batting average, right? I'm batting 333. That means that every third one I'm going to do is going to be a base hit. I'm going to get on base. And so if out of, out of 10, 10, five at bats a year, million bucks, I know that I'm going to have roughly two of them. I'm going to get on base. So that leaves two, four, six, 600 grand goes in the garbage or it stays even, right? So even just call it breaking even at the end of the day, you got one that goes down, one that goes up a little bit, the other one doesn't do much. So that, that money doesn't do anything, but it stays in the savings account um, because at some point I'm gonna get that money back at even dollars. But the other two I get on base with, which allow me to eventually potentially hit some form of a home run with it, uh, steal a base, whatever, uh, find a way to get them all the way around all four bases. And so if the, the two deals that I do that, out of the year on that, whether, and these are things I don't generally understand a lot about. Um, but, but through networking and the people that I surround myself with you, et cetera, you bring me a deal and you're like, Hey, I think this is a good deal. Here's, here's the, the, the nuts and bolts on why. Okay. You know, Hey, I don't, I don't need to know about that. Right. So I, my job is to go put as many roofs on as I can to take as many $200,000 chunks as I can and call people like Dan and go, Dan, here's 200 grand. Try to not lose it all. And if at the end of the day, two of them turn into 400, well, then now I got, right. So now I got 800 back plus the other two. And so at the end of the day, your, your, your net Delta of profit uh, is always going to be more than, you know, investing in super, super safe, you know, cheesy traditional investment vessels. And so I stay away from everything I do is on when you, you, you go to, you know, Edward Jones or pick a place and you fill out your little investor portal, how risky do you want to be? If you know that it gives you one to five or one to 10 on like the most risky, I like, I cross that out and I go to like 20, like whatever the biggest one is double it. I want to be that risky because you guys are in doctrine to be like the safest ish, you know, things that you are able to invest in, you know, put my money to work in. And so the riskiest thing that you're going to do is like a two on my personal risk level of what I'm going to do with random guys sending me stuff on Instagram and Facebook and a friend of a friend of a friend who's like, Hey, you drive a Lamborghini. Hey, I'm, I'm starting a food truck. And you're like, cool. How about we go have these on and I pay for your food truck. And they're like, who you would do that? I'm like, I don't know. Do you have good food? Let me taste some of your food. Oh, Hey, this, this makes sense. Maybe this makes sense to me. And so, you know, for a food truck, you're going to be into it for a hundred grand put the truck together, give them a couple of bucks to buy food with blah, blah, blah. And so for a hundred grand in worst case scenario, I could take that truck back and, you know, shit, I put my kid in it and we could go drive around and sell tacos on Saturday afternoon. Um, you know, so now I have ancillary benefits to me that aren't dollar cents related, 
I have an untangible I'm, value to it with my kid to teach him about, you know, financial literacy again. And so how much does the taco make? How many tacos do we have to sell in order to make sure that we broke even for today? How many do you want to make? You know, what do you want to buy with today's income? So I want an Xbox. Okay, well, that's this much. Here's what our cost is. Here's our, the difference. Here's how many tacos that you need to go sell. How late do you want to work till I got enough to get my Xbox? Uh, you know, and so that, that, you know, that's how I look at things. I, I look at, at dollar per smile and dollar per hour of what is available. That's such so a, unique, it's, it's so unique. No, go ahead. Go no, ahead. I was just saying that you're, so you're opportunistic, whatever comes at you or whatever you can go work with, you'll work with it regardless of the niche or the ecosystem or whatever the case may be. And I'll fix to one thing. Yeah. I love that, Nick. So, the, so the, that, that's something that Grant taught me 10 years ago is that the word opportunity. I, I love that. So, and so, the biggest thing in success, this is for everybody listening right now, right? This time I give you the secret sauce. doesn't matter what book you read, every which one of them say the same thing. I'm going to say it right now in as dumb Queen's English as you can have. All right. So when you have an opportunity, the biggest thing to being successful is being able to recognize that opportunity, meaning that you have enough good information to know that it's a good opportunity and you are willing to move quickly as soon as you recognize that. So you need to be actively looking at things so much that you can say, all of these look like crap. These are terrible opportunities. Why do I know that? Because I look at a lot of them and I have a lot of good information. So the information that I'm continually getting, I'm reading books, I'm listening to podcasts, I'm following Dan, et cetera. All of this information that we're gathering over here on this side to then look at all the opportunities quickly over here and go, bad one, bad one, bad one, bad one. That one's a little bit different than the other ones, right? So it's like anything else. If you're running by anything like that regularly and you're seeing, they all look the same. They smell the same. They sound the same. Everything looks, and, and it's, it's got the same texture. You're like, these are all the same. I don't like that. That's not good. Those don't do good. And then when you get one that's different, right? It's gooey. You're like, wait, why is that? What is that? You got to take a second and look at it. And as soon as you take that second to look at it, you want to have good enough information or a big enough network where you can ask people who have that good enough information, is this gooey thing a better deal? Because it's different than all these other ones. So is it different good or different bad? Yeah. And if they say it's different good, you immediately say, cool, I'm going to do that. And you put all of your time, effort, money, et cetera, into that thing because you've identified it as a good opportunity and you run with it as soon as you see it. Because nobody hates something more than going two years online, seeing somebody else doing that thing that two years ago you said was, good. hey, man, I thought I had that idea. I should have did it. And then two years later, you see somebody else doing it. And they're killing it. They're making great money. They're having a good time. Whatever the value proposition is that that thing was. You look back at your life and you're like, damn it, I knew it. But you didn't take action because you didn't make sure you had the right information. I, I would, I, I, I like that philosophy because it challenges you to kind of really think on your toes as opposed to you being back on your heels and really just going at it at one thing. I would also argue though, that you're never going to have a hundred percent of the information. You're always going to have 70 to 75% of the information. And you just got to make a decision on that and you just mm -hmm. have to pull the trigger, right? Bro, bro, we're just trying to bet 333. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like, it's like the hunting mechanics. You're just a hunter and in a world of opportunities. And it's up to you to filter out through different opportunities and then attack the one you know you can attack. 100%. You're just a hunter. You're a lion in a field of predators or whatever it is. You're just trying to make your way. I'm just curious to know, what's the tax rate in Ohio or Missouri or wherever your residency at right now? Uh, I couldn't tell you. I haven't paid any taxes. Uh, <laughs> I think my whole life. I don't think I've ever owed a dollar to the the IRS. See, um, that's the beauty about America, man. You can you can write off everything up here. It's just like it's it's the way I look at the difference, and this is why Canada, in a way, is so is always behind, but also because of the taxes. Like you guys have all these tools available to you where you can write everything off. If I wanted to write off like a plane ticket to go somewhere, you know. I have to fill out this form. I got to explain to my accountant, what did you do business with it? It's just like, that's why like America for me personally, and Nick might be different. It's just, there's such a big, I find there's just a bigger opportunity to well, do. I mean, to anybody thing. to argue that is insane or against <laughs> it. You mean? Well, yeah. Well, to argue against that position yeah. is insane. Cause Canada is a, it's a pit hole of you must do as we say. And, figure out how you can maneuver this hellhole. Yeah. 
Well, well, more often than that is it's not it's not even America realistically. Um, there's there are countries all over this world who are tax abating entrepreneurs. Do you know it does it is an America thing. I have a, a room full of friends that I see on the first Friday of every month in my my Apex uh, group that with Ryan Stuman. Um, two or three of them are realtors uh, down in Bitcoin Beach, South America. The government there doesn't take a freaking nickel from you. They just want you to buy more stuff, bring more money, slam it with new stuff. And to get dual residency there uh, for her was like nothing. And I think she's a green card. She's not even a citizen in the United States. right? This now. is El but Salvador, right? El Salvador. It might've been, been El Salvador. Yeah, yeah. it sounds, sounds like it. But so, so, you know, the point of like, you know, it, realistically here, here's what we've done. All right, Dan, and Nick, you guys have identified that you need to get the absolute hell out of Canada. <laughs> Our good friend, Corey, uh, Corey Leaf just, uh, just, of course, 80% of his way into becoming a U.S. Uh, green carded citizen permanently to operate his business here and not pay the Canadian man. Can't, can't, can't blame him. He's, he's another guy we'd have to get on for sure. But no, that dude, this was actually so interesting because it's, it's always refreshing to see like what else is out there from like the ground, as opposed to just, you know, looking at economic data, <laughs> and then having guys that come in who look at the same economic data, who are really experts at what they do. But it's always refreshing for our listeners to hear like a story like yours to say, wow, like anybody could do it. Right. That's ultimately what it comes down to. You don't need, you don't need a master's degree. You don't need an MBA. You just need to have heart, a grind and a, and a good team around you. Right. And you're a great father too, just based on what you told us, the fact that you're able to like discipline your kids and say, this is what budgeting is like, that goes a long way. So really, really appreciate you coming on here today. This has been absolutely awesome. Thank you very much. I appreciate and that. And before you go, I have one question for you. What yes. opportunities do you see now? With everything going on, moving forward, don't look back, move forward. What opportunities do you see? So where, where do you be, want to tackle? As, be, as being a complete uneducated guy here, obviously I like multifamily. Right now, real estate's terrible to get into because purchase price acquisition, et cetera, is horrible. So right now I, I, I am sitting in limbo of cash um to to be able to have an opportunity to do that thing where i somebody says something i feel i touch it and it's a thing it's a good idea okay cool well, i have cash waiting over here so you'd have all of it like right right i'm a i'm an all-in kind of guy and it, you know what if i if i if it's that good that it with the way that everything else is feeling right now we go all in on it and it goes bk or zero or whatever it does i'm like cool man i go get more whatever uh you know but but the thing Dan, you're going to hate this. Uh, some way, shape, or form is going to be there is a wealth transfer happening, good, bad, ugly, or sideways within the digital currencies. I don't understand it. I don't stand to understand it. I try to pay people to understand it that can say, hey, this one or that one may be a good idea. This one may be a good one. And whoever's betting their horse on the right one is going to be set forever whenever that, that button gets pushed and that becomes the thing. I'm going to assume that you can't have two trillion different kinds of currency whenever one, you know we move to a standardized some form of system. Um, so there will have to be like, you know, hey, there's four and these are the ones that, that lasted the, the time of technology. Uh, and so making sure that we're regularly getting the information to be able to go, ooh, this one may, this one's fizzling out over here on, on the, you know, the support and the, the technology side of it to be like, get out of this project, you know, the, the people who are moving a lot of money that would be in like whale status, paying to go in, in those rooms right now is imperative for those people that have any monicum of money and want to put it in a digital currency. Otherwise, you're guessing you're throwing darts at a board, don't do it. Make sure that you're getting good quality information so you can go smells weird, is weird, is weird, whatever weird. This one sounds good. Why does that sound good? Who's putting their money into it? Are the big people doing it? This is where a boatload millions and millions and millions of dollars, billions of dollars are flowing this way. So right now, today, that's a good one. And you know what? If all of those billions of dollars flow somewhere else, as long as you're getting all the information to know that, hey, oh, they're all exiting. I need to get out too at the same time. Then you're then it, it's a good deal. But but some way, shape, or form, I think I think crypto is going to be is going to be a something. It's I, I I tell people right now that 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 are talking about crypto because obviously it's in everything. Um, I, I do it back to like the the boom of computers, right? So if you yeah. missed out if you missed out on the first computer and you're like, damn it, you know IBM whatever, but you could get back into Apple even shoot twenty years ago. Apple, Apple came and went and was back to, you know, nearly nothing. And if you were in the place of like, this is going to become a technology that's going to be here forever. 
And, you know, these guys are putting money in, they're developing things, they're doing things slightly differently. And you're like, cool, let me buy into that one. And you went all in. So if you miss Bitcoin, whatever the next one is, we're in that time period of like the secondary, you know, Apple blowing up. And so if you get a good stock like that right now and pick, pick the right racehorse as it goes and just sit in it for years, don't spend more money than you would be willing to take to Vegas right now, tomorrow and spin it all on black if you're going crazy with it, you know. Um, but if there's, you know, Bitcoin can only go to so, so terrible with the amount of money and adopted, adopted purchasers, not even users, right? Because we're nobody's really using it to spend on anything, but there's enough of people's monies in it that, that either the government owns it and controls it. And that's how they're hedging against the inflation here. And at some point they pull the thing and the government pays off all its debt. And we're back to like, Hey, yo, we don't owe anybody anything. Cause we just stole all the money from everybody that in America. Well, that's what they usually do with gold. <laughs> they just inflate <laughs> the price and they write off all their debt. But right. then who's left over is the people that are still screwed, but they fix themselves up. That's what yep. they've done before. So I, I listen, I think crypto crypto is not going anywhere anytime soon. It's like you said, you got to find the right one. I'm I'm not a trader of crypto. I just I pick it. I've got a small portfolio. It's not as big as the one I have in terms of stocks and equities and stuff like that. You just to me, it's just like like a dartboard right now. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know enough about it yet to, to really make like a, you know, an all-in type of bet. So. I, and nobody can truly argue that they know it all because right now the way it's it's a it's an infant. It's an industry that's Stuff. an infant yeah. that has a lot of mistakes to make, that has a lot of learning curves to be learned, a lot of observation to be seen, a lot of geopolitical, economic, and social dynamics that are going to impact it. And then as it builds through those different trends then we'll know what's better and what's not, what gets ruined, what thrives. So it's, it's, it's a process right now. Nobody can be hundred percent with this right now for any of it. Yeah. It's, it's 20 years in it and pick a tech company 20 years ago. Nobody knew what, you know, nobody knew how the hell a computer worked at IBM. They were just like, okay, cool. You say it's going to be used everywhere. I don't know. Like, sweet. Here's some cash. Yeah. You know, hopefully exactly. I don't go broke with it. And same thing with crypto right now. And, and nobody knows the back end that there's a hand, there's a handful of people that do. And so you got to find the one that you, you can trust that has not the media thing. So they get rich, right? So coming from somebody else that's already wealthy, that's like, Hey, I'm doing this or that. And they're not a part of the actual, I think that's the biggest thing in crypto is that to find somebody that's not a part of the actual project, mm. but has a bunch of money and success already. That's just flowing cash there because they feel like it's going to be the next thing from the information they're getting. It's all about flows, man. It's all it is. Information flows and cash flows. Josh, where can the, uh, where can the listers find you? Uh, you can find me on any, uh, any social platform uh, at Josh Steinberger or uh, my wife and I's coaching website, mywifewillcutyou.com. <laughs> That's awesome. The most important thing. Anyway, Josh, this was great. Uh, look forward to having you on sometime in the near future, but we really appreciate you taking the time to share your story and just tell us, you know, what it's like to be on the ground up and what it really takes, right? Information flows and cash flows. Yes, sir. All right, guys, we'll see you Thank next you. time on the New Gen Mindset Podcast. Ciao, guys.